Hello, and welcome back to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I'm Chris Schreiner, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Derek Vita. Hello. And Lisa Cooper. Hello. In 2012, Google invited Steve Mahan, and apologies to Steve if I'm mispronouncing his last name. Steve has severe sight loss, and Google invited him to take a ride in their self-driving vehicle. Though truly it wasn't really driverless, there were backup people in the car in case anything went wrong. In 2016, they brought Steve back uh, to take another ride, this time in a fully driverless vehicle. This demonstrated the benefits of self-driving cars and how they can expand the world for those who face mobility challenges. This demonstration of the benefits of autonomous vehicles put them in people's good graces. But how well have they delivered on that vision? Are AVs really being designed to help those with mobility challenges? That's what we're going to talk about today. So Derek, can you take us through the past several years of self-driving car development and, and where we are? Absolutely, Chris. Right now, the focus especially if we're talking specifically about these level five robo-taxis, which is the ultimate vision that we started with, or that Google started with, with their self-driving car project in the early 2010s. For the past several years, the focus has been primarily on sending these vehicles out onto public roads or onto test tracks and teaching these quote-unquote self-driving algorithms how to react to a variety of different scenarios. And so the focus has been primarily on mileage collection and scenario collection. So as we look at the developments over the last five or so years, you'll notice that the focus has been primarily on advancing the technology, not necessarily advancing a business case or a human case for it. It's been a very engineering driven field for the past several years now. So we've been doing a lot of research on uh, people with sight loss and mobility. Earlier podcast episodes had on Martin Ralph from Guide Dogs UK to talk about UX design for those with sight loss. Lisa, could you tell us a bit about the research that we did on that that carries over into mobility and self-driving cars? Late last year, we, we started an initiative where we were looking at the role of technology in the lives of people with sight loss. We conducted these exploratory interviews to figure out where people were using technology at home and on the go. And from that open-ended research, we came across a lot of opportunities for technology to help. We came across a lot of pain points, not only in the home, but also when it came to travel. We spoke in depth about taking a train ride, about bus rides, about ride hailing, plane rides, as well as just being a pedestrian. And from those discussions, created some experience maps where we got to look at these pain points and these opportunities for technology to help. So ride hailing would be the closest thing that we would have right now to a robo-taxi. What were some of the stories or issues that people with sight loss faced with ride hailing that would be relevant for self-driving cars? So for example, one of the biggest pain points were people being denied rides 
based on the fact that they had a guide dog. So they would hail an Uber and, or, or they would request a taxi and they would either turn up and continue driving once they saw a dog or they would flat out refuse to take the dog even though that was as against ADA uh, regulations. So they would either have to educate them about ADA requirements which would either get pushed back or they, and they may even eventually get a ride, in which case once the driver would see that the dog had shed some hair in the vehicle, because remember, a lot of guide dogs are either uh, retrievers or German shepherds, which tend to shed, they would often get harassed after that drive. So not only were they denied Ubers, that, and they would have to stand there waiting, uh, who knows how long. The, I was talking to someone who was denied up to four Uber drivers, they just drove away. And they knew that because they had sighted friends looking out for it. So they had to adapt uh, various strategies. They would either have a sighted friend who would hold the Uber or the taxi until they got into it so that this person could not deny them access. Or they would, they had to make this decision whether to disclose that they were blind or visually impaired. Or they would use services like IRA, and IRA is a service for, for people who are blind or visually impaired that will organize the ride for them and make sure that it, it's followed through. So that was just one of the many issues that we found that really made it very difficult for people hailing a taxi or an Uber so that they can get to the airport, so they can get to appointments or wherever they needed to go, uh, and actually caused them a great deal of frustration and anxiety. So just to add one more thing, often access was denied based on cultural uh, perceptions of a dog being in the car, or it would be about just the mess that they would leave, and they didn't want that for their vehicle. And the consequence of that often would be they, they would penalize people with sight loss if they had a guide dog and they did accept the ride, either by charging them a no-show fee or by putting fraudulent charges on their credit card, like... Like cleaning fees. No, no, it would be about something completely different. It would be, oh, we had to return this item to you. Mm. Uh, so it would be a fraudulent charge that then they would have to fight after the fact. And what was so disempowering to this group was the lack of consequences often. Nothing would happen afterwards. So something like self-driving vehicles, where there is no driver, it would mitigate all of that. So Lisa, a few years ago, my team at Strategy Analytics conducted some participatory design sessions around transport choice, both now and in the future. And several common factors came up that people tend to use when deciding how to get from A to B. And those factors can vary depending on if it's cold or hot outside or raining, uh, if they're in a nice neighborhood versus a neighborhood where they might not feel so comfortable if they're a male or a female, if they have children with them, if they're carrying big boxes and, and so on and so forth, that will determine whether they choose a convenient form of transportation or one that they feel is safest. But the factor that always tended to bubble up independent of everything else, assuming all else is equal, is price, the cost of a single journey. I was wondering if that topic came up at all in your interviews with folks with sight loss about the role of price and how that might affect how they choose to get from A to B. Because, for example, I know for a fact that a Uber trip 
might be a different price point than say a local paratransit trip. Can you speak to that at all? I imagine that price point, if I was to dig a little further into that, possibly would come up because their lack of access to transportation has caused unemployment. So Derek, you're the self-driving car expert in the group, and you've also been talking with people with sight loss to examine what their perceptions are, what benefits they see with them, and what concerns they might have with taking a robo-taxi. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure thing. So our research uh, on my team springboarded off of Lisa's fantastic interviews and focused specifically on the needs of the sight loss community, as well as just the general sentiment in the sight loss community about uh, this potential robo-taxi future. Because this is really where rubber beats road for AVs. And as Chris mentioned at the top of the show, this is something that Google talked about 10 years ago with the initial self-driving project, that this could unlock independence for an enormous swath of people who've desperately needed these, these options. So it's fantastic to see this opportunity uh, get closer and closer to reality. The problem is when we ask folks with sight loss what they most need in a ride hailing or taxi service, a lot of those needs are not currently addressed with current on-road self-driving fleets. And I really, other than lip service saying, oh, we've been talking to people in this community and, and accessibility is very important. We don't really see a whole lot of outward action that proves that companies like Waymo and Cruise and so on are actually thinking about this. In fact, what we're seeing is the opposite now. Uh, we're to a point now where in 2020 and in 2021, companies are pointing the finger everywhere but themselves. I hate to pick on companies, but I'm going to pick on a company right now. I mentioned May Mobility in a previous episode. They're doing great work currently partnering with the University of Michigan Transportation Institute as part of uh, the U.S. DOT's Inclusive Design Challenge to design a universal wheelchair docking system for a self-driving car that does not require uh, human support, which is a fantastic idea. What they're leaving out of the story, for obvious reasons, is about halfway through last year, it came out in a... a expose from VentureBeat that May Mobility essentially had to be beaten over the head to comply with ADA regulations for wheelchair access in one of their deployments in Columbus, Ohio. And that's really the norm rather than the exception right now. I'll use Waymo as another example recently, who should know better than any company in this space because they are the spinoff from the original Google self-driving car project. They're to a point now where their policy folks are essentially blaming automakers for the fact that their fleet is not as accessible as it could be. It's essentially retrofitted Pacificas in their fleet in Phoenix, Arizona. And when asked about how they're addressing accessibility, their response is, well, we're still learning. Oh, and we can only work with the cars that automakers are giving us. Yeah, I think that's the development of, of AVs over the past 10 years has contributed to that because originally you had Google that designed their own vehicle. Uh, you had GM that was trying to develop algorithms. And we've had this shift where you're either creating the software algorithms for it, or you're making a dumb car that those algorithms can be put in. And so therefore, we've left this user-centered design. We're not thinking about the user first. We're just creating an algorithm and then shoving it in a car that isn't designed for this use case. 
this is a really tough problem to solve. I don't want to poo-poo the fact that engineering a thing that can stay in its lane and avoid objects is a, a solvable problem or whatever. The fact that we've gotten to this point is incredibly impressive. Yes. And certainly we have more work to do there. But it's also the easiest part of developing this whole thing. And it seems like we're sort of stuck in this loop right now where we're focused on iterating the, on the exact same engineering problems over and over and over again, and just treating accessibility and inclusivity as sort of a, an update after release. And that's not the way it should be working in any vertical, but especially automotive. It's really, really hard to move backwards from that finished product, whether it's a video game or a mobile device or a smart home feature, whatever moving backwards from that finished product to something that is actually accessible and inclusive for all populations. So especially in transportation, especially in robo-taxis that have such incredible promise, we can't continue to ignore the sight loss community, especially. All right, well, let's move on to condensed soup. Condensed soup. Condensed soup. This week, we're going to talk about our most difficult or challenging driving experience. Lisa, why don't you go first? That's an easy one for me. I would say, well, I would say I'm from England originally, so I'm used to driving on single lane roads, very tight, close quarters. But one of the most challenging driving environments for me is when it's very foggy and you're on these single lane roads you cannot see around corners and you cannot see very far in front of you. That is the most stressful experience driving for me and happened to me many times down in Glastonbury in England. Yikes. Derek, how about you? The first time that I drove a car internationally, not including Canada, was many years ago on one of my first trips to Germany. I... Thought that I was fairly well prepared. I'm a reasonable driver in America, and I took the international driving test that's offered by my local car club, and Germany is right side drive anyway. I thought it was all set. Ten minutes away from the airport in Munich, I pulled up to a traffic signal on a thoroughfare to make a left turn. The traffic signal was completely dark. In America... What does that mean, Chris and Lisa? That means it's a four-way stop. That is correct. And so I was very confused why everybody was ignoring this traffic signal and zooming past it, including the oncoming traffic as I was trying to make a left turn, and why the car behind me was so angry that I was stopped in the road. It turns out that in Germany, in Bavaria in particular, this dead traffic signal was a traffic control device that was only illuminated during commuting hours on weekdays. <laughs> so this dumb American is sitting in the middle of the road blocking traffic, expecting everybody to stop for this four-way stop when that was not the case. So it was a learning experience. I share your difficulties in driving around Germany. I've, I've had several experiences trying to find certain streets, <laughs> following street signs and looking for the small street signs on the side of the road. Uh, oh, yes. But mine, uh, I'll take a, a slightly different route, a very low speed maneuver. My most challenging driving experience has 
been backing up trailers. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, yes. Used to uh, be horse owners. And so we had a we had a big, big pickup truck and we'd have the trailer hitched onto the back. And our driveway was rather long. And the way it was designed in order to get the horses to where we needed to get them, we would have to pull in and then back up and then go forward and then back up again, kind of doing a three-point turn with a trailer. Thankfully, <laughs> there's no other traffic around and I could go as slow as I could. And I got really good at it, if I do say so myself. But it is not the easiest thing to do. And I assume you don't have one of those newfangled trucks with the automated trailer steering knob. You know what I'm talking no, about? No, I do know what you're talking about. I wish I had one of those because that would have made it a lot easier. This was good old-fashioned reversing. Props. You should try driving a canal boat. <laughs> <laughs> I crashed one once. Well, there's a delay. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I would do well if there were delays in steering. Or if there's someone coming the other way and you're trying to move it and it just doesn't move. <laughs> oh no. A little bit of latency. Well, if you'd like to see our research on self-driving cars or our research series on those with sight loss. Or to send us any other questions, you can email us at uxsoup, all one word, at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, which is ux-soup.com, has links to all of our research. And there you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UXSoup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights in mobile, automotive, and smart home by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.